This is Matthew Putman, and you're listening to Utility Function. Today, I had a chance to speak with my friend Gary Marcus, who I've known for over 10 years now. He's a scientist, a best selling author, an entrepreneur, and you know, he's created companies. So, this is a guy who's worked in academia for many years, does not anymore, I found out during our conversation, but is now building artificial intelligence. He's been known for some for being a skeptic of AI, but we have to give a lot of credit where credit is due that even though being a skeptic, he is building AI companies. I was influenced by a lot of his books, including the book Kluge, which I speak about here. I really hope you enjoy this podcast. It was a fun one to do. And as always, I learned a lot from Gary. Hey, Gary, thanks for coming. My pleasure. I would normally have you here next to me and, uh, it, you know, we would be having a beer together, but I'm drinking a beer alone. Um, so the perils of 2020, <laughs> at least you get to have a beer on your own podcast. So, well, yeah, I, you know, it's, 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 uh, I wanted to have it close to five o'clock, but no, you know, we've, God, we've known each other for 10 years or so now. Is mm-hmm. that right? That sounds about um, right. Yeah. Yeah, it's been such a, a pleasure, and I've uh, told you this before, that you came into my life um, through me reading one of your books called Kluge. And because of that, uh, even though you have t- don't probably don't want to touch on books that you wrote that long ago, I think there's an interesting connection between the first book I read and much of what you're speaking about in AI. Um, so if you, if you wouldn't mind just talking a little bit about Kluge, um, sure. and because so much of it has to do with, to me, something about imperfections in a way and how things evolve and, you know, how that maybe led to some of the work you're doing now. I mean, good for you because there's a tension between that book and the stuff that I've been talking about in AI lately. And so, you know, good for you for subtly pointing that out and even thinking about these these you know, semi-bookends on, on my career. Um, of course, there was other stuff before that. Um, the premise of Kluge is that the human mind is limited. And the premise of Rebooting AI, which is my most recent book, uh, co-written with Ernie Davis, is that humans, as much as they may suck at cognition, are actually much better than machines. And so, you know, people should be calling me to task for that more than they do. Um, And it's interesting to explore the tension. I had a panel that actually you were indirectly responsible for in Brooklyn not so long ago, where Danny Kahneman and I were up on the stage. And we had a little back and forth that I think kind of captures it, where he's actually more keen on AI as it currently exists than I am. Um, and we could talk about why. And, you know, he said humans are a low bar. And I said, you're absolutely right. But it's just that AI hasn't exceeded that bar yet. And so, you know, Kluge was about how the bar for a possible creature is pretty low. There's a lot of things we do pretty poorly. A lot of it draws from Danny's work, in fact, but is, there's other strands, too. It's not just his work, um, though much of it was inspired by him. Um, for example, confirmation bias, uh, which is not one that Danny himself identified, is a devastating aspect of human cognition. What it means is you notice evidence in favor of your favorite pet theories, and you tend not to notice evidence that contradicts it. So of course you wind up with a biased view, and you wind up being smug thinking you're right more often than you actually are. Well, that's that's dreadful. So, you know, that's your low bar for you. 
um, in principle, a machine ought to do better. But then, you know, the last book is about all the ways in which machines actually fall, fall apart when you, you even push on them a little bit. So they, they're not actually able to reason even as well as ordinary people. They should have an advantage because, for example, you can search your memory in systematic ways, at least in classical computers, less so in the neural networks. Um, and that should transform into an advantage. And of course, it does in some domains like chess, where you can do these vast searches, do them systematically, and and play very well. But it hasn't cashed out in language understanding, general purpose reasoning, and so forth. So someday, you know, 200 years from now, we will have machines that will be way better at everyday reasoning than people. But right now, we're sort of still getting that ball game started, even, even trying to figure out how you would play that game to make a machine that, let's say, could read the medical literature on COVID and discover some approach that humans had neglected. Right? We can do that in Go. We can get a machine to find a line of play that no human has ever found before, but we can't really do it in science to the same degree. Go is very bounded, let's say, you know, it's the same set of rules for the last 2000 years, and you can keep playing yourself indefinitely and gather a lot of data. You can't keep playing yourself in science. You can't say, well, I'll try this drug and I'll see in silico simulation whether it works. And I know you know a lot about that. We could talk about it some, um, but it's just not practical yet to do that kind of thing. And so there, when you can't sort of brute force the problem, the AI is not that good and it isn't even as good as the fallible humans. Okay, I, I feels like you're always the consciousness of AI to show what you know where it falls short, and clearly you've you've pointed to where human reasoning falls short, and it could be cognitive biases. It's it's interesting. Of course, the big talk of the day where we are right now, and the time we are right now, is GPT three. Mm-hmm. Um, and how well, they far... paid me the greatest compliment, backhanded compliment they could, which is they they refused to allow me to test it. So um, I thought, really, really, and seriously, I wrote to them, and they they said we'll let you test it eventually, even as they're like you know sending out licenses to everybody else left and right. So I, I have to infer that they are afraid of what I'll say about it because of what I said about GPT two. Um, which is the statistics here are really impressive in terms of like how it's using, I should say what I mean by that. The result is pretty impressive in terms of it produces text that looks like a person, but the coherence is actually very poor and the understanding of the world is very poor. So a lot of things in the world are statistically correlated with a deeper understanding of the world, but that doesn't mean that they're the right thing. The metaphor I used in an article I wrote recently called The Next Decade in AI um, was shadows. So it's like GPT-2 and now GPT-3 picks up on shadows of the things that we really care about. What we really care about are like people and objects in the world and so forth. And there are statistical traces of those in the history of how we talk about things. And if you have a big enough corpus, you can find a shadow for almost anything and you can try to work on that shadow. That doesn't mean that your system has actually represented what's out there or that it can really reason in a reliable way over that. Um, and I would like to be able to show that in GPT-3. I've got um, somebody, I don't know, male or female, who has said on Twitter, here, send me your stuff and I'll, I'll test it out for you. So the Twitterverse is not entirely amused that, that oh, OpenAI has, has, has cut me out you'll of the loop. There and you, could just, you can talk trash about it until then. But, I, but I, I, I get your point, though, that you would say that even then when there's a GPT-6, the general premise is still going to be the same unless they change 
the way that they go about viewing general intelligence. Well, I mean, either they can rebrand and start including other techniques, um, or I think they have a problem. So GPT-3 and 2 are actually essentially identical, except for the size of the corpus. And the strong bet I would make is even if you raise the size of the corpus, the, the database by another factor of 100, you wouldn't really be addressing the foundational problem. So of course, they could build some other architecture and call it GPT-6. I mean, what really matters is what's under right. the hood. Right. But as long, long as they yeah. stick with this architecture, yeah. I don't think it's going to work. I mean, there's a sort of parallel debate about deep learning, which is like, there is a thing that deep learning has been, which is like multi-layer perceptrons, which have been around for a long time, um, and related. And I had this debate with Yashua Benjio in December, and he said, that's not what deep learning is. What deep learning is, is neurally inspired systems or something like that. And, you know, having defined the field, I get, I think he has some right to, you know, describe what he wants to describe and to describe his own future research program. But this is different from how people have understood it before. And he didn't make commitments to like, there'll be a multi-layered network in this, or it'll be traded by gradient descent and so forth. So like, nobody can say what will be called deep learning 20 years from now, but you can ask questions like, will gradient descent be a central part of it? Will you need to explicitly represent symbolic knowledge and so forth? You, you can make bets about that. You can't really make bets about how the human terms will re revise over time. But I can make the bet that even GPT-6, if it worked on the same principles and no others, and there are no new principles, still would not really capture what I think is important about cognition, which is building a mental model of what you see or hear or some integration of that or feel or touch, um, and then know what entities are there and what the relationships are between those entities, and then reason about them. So, you know, I could step on this, but I'd fall in if I stepped on that and, and so forth. And GPT-3 doesn't really have that capacity. It will correctly answer a lot of questions about that because it'll be something in its text that's close to your question, but you can still break it and, you know, have fooled around um, in this kind of sub rosa kind of way a little bit. And, you know, I get weird results. Like one question was um, something like if you have 60 jurors and 22 of them leave, how many are left? And one time it nailed it and got 38. Another time we left in an extra space by accident and introduced a page number and got the arithmetic completely wrong. So, like, there's no reliability there. If if you exactly match something, essentially, I'm simplifying slightly, but roughly speaking, if you exactly match something that's in the corpus, you might be golden. But if you stray from that, even by adding an extra character, there's just no robustness there. Well, and even if you match something, um, you, you're you're matching that one particular thing, and not necessarily contextually the what what is going on. Yeah, I mean, we talk about interpretability a lot in the field, and real interpretability would be if I fed in a discourse, you could then um, query it, and you could say, okay, so tell me how many people are involved, who's the protagonist, what is the tension here? I mean, like, if I were asking you to watch, you know, a Terminator movie, I could say, you know, what's at stake here? Why are the robots angry? You know, what's Arnold Schwarzenegger's character doing? You can't do that with GPT. You can't feed in a story and reliably get it to abstract away what is going on and ask questions about it. It doesn't have that level of interpretability. It's, it's actually very reminiscent of an old uh, intellectual tension, which is about Skinner and behaviorism versus Chomsky and cognitivism. So Skinner was trying to get everything from a history of reinforcement and reward. And GPT is at some level doing something like that. It's trying to get everything out of the history of what was said after what other utterance. And what 
Chomsky said, and this was all thought out in the 50s, and Chomsky won, or at least mostly won at the time, um, is you actually have to have internal representations. You can't just do it from this history of behavior. You have to have internal representations. And I'm just really making that same argument again. And the difference is that the tools that are on the behavior side are vastly better than anything that Chomsky had to reckon with. And then it was like paper and pencil, and now it's like a trillion parameter um, you know, database uh, or, I mean, system with, with, you know, a trillion words input. And so the f- formal resources are astonishing, and it does pretty well. But, you know, Chomsky could see that back in the day. He talked about n-gram models. He said, if you look at the last word and try to predict the next word from the statistics of it, you get a, a really poor approximation to English. If you go back two words, so that's a bigram, um, you know, you do pretty well. If you go back three words, you do a little bit better and four words a little bit better. And so these are basically 2,048 grams. And of course they do well at approximating English by looking at the statistics over the large corpus, but they're still not really solving the problem. Right. Oh, yes. I, I think that, so a couple things came out. Um, I interviewed uh, Anina uh, Anand Kumar. Do you know Anima? Anima, Yes. Yeah, oh, animal. God, the whole time I said her name wrong. Uh, actually, I'm not 100 percent sure, but oh. anima or anima, however she says. <laughs> so she. I've heard so it both ways. When we discussed um, uh, uh, GPT three, her main concern was, um, I, I think, a certain aggression or bias caused by it being trained heavily on Reddit, um, and. I I could say, so I I didn't disagree with her. I said, well, that's true. You have a certain, you know, you you do certainly have something that is aggressive on Reddit, kind of similar to what the problem was Microsoft when they created an AI that had to be taken off right away. Hey, you're referring to, yeah. Hey, that's right, hey. And then if I think, if I take this one step further and I said, but yeah, you could, what if you trained on the entirety of the internet? Is it? It's possible that we still have an inherent bias that is different than a human bias. So you know the, whether it's uh, you know a, a search engine that is uh, ad tech based and how you and what somebody would search for is still not really symbolic human learning. Is, I, would you think that that's true? Yeah, I mean, I think there are a few different issues. So one is like, what inherent bias does this algorithm have? Another is if you have a system that is really kind of blindly processing the data without any sophistication, without any real cognitive understanding, it's going to perpetuate biases that existed in the past that we don't want to continue. So the the systems don't have the sophistication to tell the difference. So like, I know you're a musician and, and you know about kind of how blind auditions change things. If you had plopped a current algorithm in 1910, it would tell you that you don't even bother to audition the women because they've never been in the orchestra. And if they haven't been in the orchestra before, why should you think that they will, you know, should ever be there? And that's a a case of a system not having any understanding of, you know, the role of history and how people change things and bias and so forth. And if that's all it does is perpetuate the prior data, then you have a problem. So then, right. So what what you're referring to, if people don't know, is that if you go to audition for the symphony, you have um, a curtain in front of you, so nobody knows if it's a man, a woman, uh, you know what the race is, so that you really are just focusing on the music. 
And as soon as they started doing those blind auditions, a lot more women became part of orchestras. It went from like nothing to 30% pretty quickly or something like that. Right. I remember the exact right. Numbers. So the equivalent of this would be, if you're only looking at the text, you know that this is a, a Reddit participator or an internet, um, some, somebody who heavily, uh, it, you know, heavily plays in the game of something that is not, uh, you know, subtextually part of our lives. Um, it, it's, it, it's not physics based in the same way. It's not personal. It's not based. principle based is what I would say. If it's just data and no principles, then you're screwed because there's so many historical biases that we're trying to move past. I mean, if we've learned nothing in 2020, it's that we're still pretty stuck in those biases. And what we want is for our AI systems, to the extent that they interact with actual human life, to not perpetuate those biases. We want them to do as we wish that we would do and not as we have done. And that requires doing something that's more than just blind data dredging. That requires something that can understand things like race, class, and gender and how they fit in and how there have been historical biases that we're trying to change, which a human can do, but you know, blind data dredging can't. Not saying no AI will ever be sophisticated enough to do it, but the ones that we have now are not. They, they don't understand a concept like class or, you know, my favorite example is actually Asimov's Laws. You know, one of them is basically don't do harm to people. And that's easy to say. And I, I can have a subroutine that says, you know, call harm and, and you know, we, we can see whether any harm has been done to the people. But we don't actually know how to write the code to evaluate what harm is. And like the dominant paradigm is like, I'll show you a bunch of pictures with labels on it. So I could show you, you know, pictures with bullet holes and say this person has been harmed. But that's not really going to capture harm. It's not going to be subtle enough. Um, to deal with you know weird cases that we haven't thought of and 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 so forth and so just perceptually classifying doesn't get you there. Yeah, I guess we don't we don't de we wouldn't have psychology if we knew what harm was even for humans. Uh, if you have to dig fairly deep, you know, and post traumatic stress disorder or childhood trauma and all of these things. Yeah, it, 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 you're totally right, but it's like it's worse than that. So there are a lot of subtle cases that you know, maybe need some sophisticated human understanding that maybe a therapist has or something like that. Then there's some just basic things like, you know, is it harmful if, if I drop a suitcase on my foot that, you know, may not happen to be there in the corpus and the system, you know, doesn't have the first principles of like weight and the fragility of toes. And, you know, there's stuff that would be obvious even to a four-year-old, you know, forget a, you know, a PhD. It doesn't have the physics part of it, but it has some textual things that say... All it has is the text. It lives in a world of text. And the most charitable thing you can say actually revolves around that. You can say it's still dumb. I get it. Um, and it's dumb because it's stuck in the world of text. And that's sort of true, but it also, I think, points out a problem, which is nobody knows how to make something like that that isn't stuck in the world of text. Nobody knows how to make a system like that that can acquire knowledge in a more verbal way or that can you know, get a lesson that actually teaches you something the way the humans transmit some of their culture. So, you know, at some level, an AI would be a kind of culture acquiring machine, right? A lot of what we think of as intelligence is culturally acquired. Um, but it's not just the words, right? We, we get the culture in a context of like, if, you know, if I'm teaching you how to make boats, then you go out and try the boats. Or if, um, you know, and, and that level isn't there. It's like you could, you're not really going to learn how a to make a boat just by reading a book about boats. You probably actually want to go out on the water a little bit. And you know, the systems don't 
do the equivalent of that. It's it's just they're they're correlating, you know, words about hull and skin and whatever, and trying to figure out, you know, what a boat is, and this is not going to work. Yeah, I mean, there's there's certainly enormous way to go, and I, I can't imagine anybody thinking that there's not enormous way to go if you were to try to make have you know human instinctual understanding or representation of the world. Um, a lot of people in computer science or just in general say, well, have, have we come close to, and I think we can try to figure out whether we just get by thinking of this at all, is whether it's GPT-3 or something that is like it right there, capable of passing the Turing test right now. And does that matter? And do we want to go ahead and give it to it? Say that, not, you know, you can hardly tell, do we want to just give up on that so that you and I and whatever different things, and we'll try to talk about what, what you're trying, what, you know, what what you care about trying to not just say are things that are wrong with current AI, but what you would like to make right. But do we do we have to push beyond this idea of high fooled you? We definitely do. In fact, um, people often accuse me of moving the goalposts. But um, you know, I've been pushing against the Turing test for a long time. Uh, one thing that I know is in the public record is a New Yorker essay when Eugene Gustman quote won the Turing test. It was around 2015. And I said, this is not really a measure of intelligence. It's a measure of how easy it is to fool people in a very brief conversation. There were like three-minute conversations. And that that's just not the right measure. We're not, we're not it, like the success in Eugene Guzman, or Eugene Guzman's success, relative success on the Turing test, didn't actually teach us anything about how to build artificial intelligence. It was just basically a, a bag of tricks. You know, we learned over the years that the best way to fool a person is to have a character that is paranoid, doesn't speak English very well, and is perhaps naive in some way. So Eugene Guzman was supposed to be a 13-year-old boy um, from Odessa. And so there was a cover story to explain whenever it couldn't answer your question, it, it would obfuscate or divert or whatever. And so, yeah, that fooled people. And, and something actually was learned about what it takes to win at the Turing test, which is to you know, give yourself a cover story so you're not beholden to anything. But it didn't actually... You know, it couldn't actually answer questions like, could a, um elephant sit in a hat? Like, it had no basic understanding of the ordinary world. And so, you know, the questions that have animated people who've worked in AI for a long time are not actually addressed by it. And so, in that sense, it, it was not actually moving the field forward. What I suggested in that particular essay was a comprehension challenge, a little bit like something I said earlier today, where you should be able to have an AI system, let's say, watch a video or listen to a podcast and answer questions about it as well as, let's say, an average person. So like there, Breaking Bad was hot. And I gave an example in that essay at the end about you should be able to say, why would Walter White want to take a hit out on Jesse? And if you've been watching Breaking Bad, you would realize that you know Jesse knew a lot of things about what Walter White was doing and could you know get Walter White in, j in jail. And then White wouldn't be able to take care of his family anymore and, and blah, blah, blah. Um, whereas the AI systems that were popular then would have no basis to be able to do that. It'd actually be fun to, you know, feed in the scripts of Breaking Bad to GPT-2 or 3 or whatever and ask that question. It's not really going to be able to do it. I still think that a kind of generalized comprehension, let's say at the level of a 10-year-old who could watch a TV show, um, is pretty far from where we are now. And the other thing that's happened with GPT-3 is I've read a lot of things in the last week where people are like, well, I thought AGI was really far away, but now, you know, maybe it's only five years. And it doesn't represent the kind of progress that it seems at first blush to reveal. 
Yeah, I mean, what's what's kind of interesting to me though is that you know what it's not in it's not impossible to see the horizon where it would still be able to answer some of these questions that you had in 2015 better than it, than an AI in 2015. It would pass what is considered the Turing test even by a wider group of people. Um, so if that happened. And but but, you know, you and I and some of us, we, you know, we're feeling, you know, this this is not this is not about human learning or human cognition It has nothing to do with the human brain. The first thing is, does that matter? And then if it does matter, is do what what do we want to what what do we really want to create? Is this sort of instinctual human? What are are you interested in? I mean, I think that's a good question. Matter for what? So. You know, one is like bragging rights, and you can say I, I beat the Turing test. Another, you know, but I mean that's that's sort of hermetically sealed, like chess. I mean, you you personally, um, what would you like to achieve if if that what is- I well, so I mean, I'll give you an example, right? I'm I'm running a robotics company now, and what we're trying to achieve in the robotics company is to have build robots that we can trust fundamentally, um, and GPT is not really going to help us towards that. You know, we, we don't have aspirations of, of throwing in there because what we need for that is a level of reliability. So, you know, what I found in, in my indirect experiments on GPT through um, intermediary is it's not very reliable. I already gave you, you know, one example of that. You added a space and the, you know, the whole thing falls apart. Um, there are lots of questions where GPT might be like 70% correct. And there are some applications for which that would be fine. Like, you were doing advertising recommendation, you might be able to repurpose a 70% performance pretty well. Um, if you are trying to create um, fake bots, you know, misinformation bots, it's great. I mean, you can easily produce a lot of stuff and some stuff will stick and some won't and you don't care. Um, if you want a robot to reliably roam your home, 70% performance would be terrible, right? Because, you know, like I, I say, put grandpa in bed and it works 70% of the time and drops him on the floor 30% of the time. That's not acceptable performance. Yeah. This is a bit off topic, but um, I, I did another one of these recently with Pamela McCordick. She had come up with in the, I think in the eighties or something of the geriatric um, uh, robot, Um, you know, and she's 80 years old now. And she was this, basically this robot would do everything to take care of you. But then when you tell it to shut up and go in the corner, it will. Not why you know they won't be watching TV, talking on its phone, and doing everything else that somebody would uh, you know do if you just hired somebody to take care of you. Well, um, I I grew up wanting Rosie the robot. Still want yeah. Rosie now that I have two yeah. little kids, but I'm close enough to the geriatric stage that I want the geriatric. You know, I mean, I'm not there yet, but I I want to have that by the time I get there. That that you know, a robot can keep me from having to go to a nursing home. Well, right. And that's what she was saying back then. And it's interesting. Apparently, she got criticized by a lot of people at the time for for being that's sort of a inhuman thing. It's like, no, humans can drive you crazy too. <laughs> you know, no doubt about that. <laughs> but no, that's I. Okay, so I I think this is you know I, I think you do play this incredible role of every time somebody will say you're moving the goalpost. It would be like your entire life is there to criticize other people's work. And I've not taken it that way at all. I, in fact, 
I, I mean, I, I think that you're incredibly open to discourse. I think that, you know, you, you've, you know, a scientifically, um, you know, skeptical person that wants to push the field ahead or to challenge people's beliefs is great. Um, and, but you're doing one other thing, which is actually trying to build something at the same time, which means a lot more to me than just an academic doing it, even though you, you know, you're endowed chair and so on of a, as an I'm retired, actually. I didn't tell you that. I, I oh was a you know, full professor at NYU for, I, I don't know, a decade or something like that. But I, I recently retired. I'm emeritus at NYU and, and full-time doing the trying to build thing. It's cool. Thing. cool. All right. Well, that, that's even more so. Uh, great. You've, you've left a certain institution, um, maybe touched on the institution of Silicon Valley, but building something that has been your dream, you know, something that you're trying to build. Um, but I, I, I do want to get into then, you know, going from, from what people might perceive as a general intelligence from GPT-3 to what symbolic instinctual understanding of the world is, um, to maybe talk to this geriatric robot to say, you know, right now we need to solve direct problems that different forms of either machine learning or other types of artificial intelligence are certainly more promising than some things that we can do, I would say. Um, and there's a certain urgency right now um, that we're in a time of a global pandemic. Uh, we are feeling vulnerable and we're looking, you know, what tools do we have to be able to move faster than we ever were before? What do, do, you, do you, does that make you pivot your work at all? And if, if, it, if so, that's interesting. If not, where, where are people missing something or where are they taking advantage of it? Well, I mean, I guess there, there's a personal question and a global question. The, either one. The, the, I'll take both. I mean, well, maybe there's a company question too. The, the, the personal question is I've spent a bunch of my time writing about how to think clearly about COVID. So I wrote three essays in March urging lockdowns you know, pretty early in that cycle trying to get people to realize that waiting for information has a cost. Um, I wrote all of these with Annie Duke. Um, and um, so, you know, her, her perspective was in there too. Um, and we're actually about to write another piece again. And then I, I just wrote a piece um, about reopening schools and why I think it's not a good idea, even though um, in the place where I'm living now, they're intending to do so. And they're not only intending to do so, but trying to do so in a mandatory way, which I think is not a good idea. Um, so, you know, I've spent some of my personal time directly trying to get people to think clearly about it. And it, I think a large fraction of the misery that the United States has experienced is, is from lack of clear thinking about COVID. So there are all kinds of biases, like, you know, people have a belief in a kind of just world that makes them think that I'll be okay. And there's, you know, the good, you know, the better than average effect they used to call the Lake Wobegon effect, um, where people think, you know, there are a lot of bad drivers, but it's not me that's the bad driver, but you average that out and, and the numbers don't work out. And that happens a bit with, with COVID numbers. People think that they're safer than they are. They think that if their jurisdiction has zero cases that they're fine and they don't factor in that neighboring jurisdictions do. With a bunch of smart, wealthy people in, in a close party saying Rhode Island doesn't have cases. Today, Rhode Island, 
banned from coming to New York. <laughs> oh, I didn't so, hear that one. But so yeah. there are many, many such cases. And then the mask stuff is just insane. Like we don't have a hundred percent of the information, but there's a lot of information that suggests that it would help. And you know, the cost is too high to to wait for perfection. You know, if if we're sort of seventy percent sure and might save a hundred thousand lives, like it just doesn't make sense to to wait on the mask, even though we don't perfectly no and i think a good scientist understands that what we're always doing is something like bayesian integration of information we always realize there's uncertainty around all of our estimates but there's a cost to getting that information um and a lot of stuff early on is like well it just looks like a flu to me and you know um people were not i think thinking through things through carefully and that has persisted even now through august when we're recording this that i think a lot of poor decisions have been made so some of my effort has gone there um Stuff I can't talk about in my company yet, but we have some ideas about how we might help help with some of this. And then the the global question is really like, has AI had an impact? Could it have an impact? What are we learning about AI from this? My view is that COVID is a wake-up call for a lot of things. It's a wake-up call on climate change because um, it says, you know, some of the things that some people worry about some of the time that don't seem so bad really are, you know, worse than we ever dreamed of. And we need to review all of the risks. We can't just say that we got through this one and we're done. Um, so there's that sort of macro level. And then at the AI level, you know, there are a lot of things that we should be able to do now. Th think about it. AI has been here 60 years. We have billions of times more compute, billions of times more data, et cetera, um, you know, much better programming tools. And yet a lot of the basic promise of AI we could use right now and don't have it. So some examples are, it'd be great if we had worldwide monitoring systems that could tell us about risk that we're not taking too seriously, or not, sorry, not taking seriously enough. It would be great if we had systems that could read the medical literature and propose new drugs that humans have not thought of. It would be great, you know, go down the list, but a lot of it's sort of around scientific understanding. The reality is we're not there. It, it was a I had a little squabble with Facebook a couple of years ago, and I said, you know, most of their research effort goes into advertising. And we had some back and forth. And the bottom line is not most of their academic research. They do some academic research. But the company as a whole, yeah, most of the research is like, how can I have a better news feed? And of course. I mean, there's, this is something that it's taken me, you know, a couple of years to understand why, of course, Google doesn't get as much out of their labs as, you know, out of their research labs as did, you know, Edison labs or why Facebook, no matter how smart they are, still has advertising optimization. That's no, their business. And it's you their know, business. And it's, it's distorted things a little because that we think they're doing something else. Otherwise, it's just a business model. But yeah. I'm well, it's, it's also, if I can just say one more thing there, I, I think it has distorted the field because, you know, many people now train to be an AI and they tend to go where the money is in places like Facebook and Google have that money. And, and you know, so, some small percentage, I think, gets to work on genuinely interesting things. But I think a lot of the talent gets diverted to these very immediate problems, like how do I optimize newsfeed in order to get viewers? And, you know, I think that's had bad political consequences directly, but also indirectly, it is meant that I don't think that enough of our best minds are really thinking about the hard questions in AI. Um, one that would actually be relevant to Facebook, but just seems too far away for them to get into is how you would monitor for fake news. So there's some things you can do that are fairly easy, like 
you can you know decide that that uh, I don't want to be too overtly political, but perhaps you put less weight on something in Fox News than you do on CNN if you have my views and someone else might have others. Um, and so you you can do some weighing of of sources. Maybe I could think of a better example. Um, and so forth. But what you really like is a system that can actually look up known facts and reason about them and say, you know, this is plausible or somebody has done this or that with, you know, how they're recounting the uh, set of events. They've left this out. I mean, that would be really a contribution to uh, humanity, I think, to have a really solid um, misinformation detection system. But it's so far outside the scope of the tools that we have now that you know, people are afraid to run from the low-hanging fruit to these harder problems. Oh, man. I, I mean, I would agree with you completely if we, but I want to step back to what you said before for making me a little bit skeptical of what you're saying. Um, you talked about, you know, you know uh, what we really screwed up um, early, in, early in COVID days and that we still actually continue to make poor decisions now. Um, but so I, I went, I was on a panel in DC late February and it was clear to me that this was going to get fairly bad, but then early in March, you started to, so on that panel, somebody said, and it was, you know, a, a, you know, a decent, you know, established person said, I guess it was early March said, I, you know, we have to stop trusting, um, you know, uh, Donald Trump on things. He's an unreliable source. Why we need to be listening to Anthony Fauci. Now, this, so this, there's this prior that if you're going to think probabilistically, this seems to make what humans should be able to understand in a way that that seemed to make sense. But if you would really follow that advice, it would also be harmful. I mean, those were the days that we were being told by any authority that masks were not something we should have. We we were so that you get you get to a point where humans didn't have the the uh, enough uh, information to do anything except for to look to different authorities and the different authorities, whether it was the WHO or whether it was the president of the United States, were giving poor information. So it be it feels like if there should be some type of machine that is able to help you. The problem is then you're stuck with machines that are completely influenced by human inputs. So we're stuck. Well, in no, I mean, yes and no. So, so the dream is the machines could actually read the data for themselves and do the simulations they need to do, do the causal inferencing they need to do right. um, in a way that was the point I was trying to make, but maybe I didn't make it clearly enough. So, so, If all you can do is kind of balance your authority figures, you're in trouble. I mean, authority figures make mistakes. And, and you know, we, we want to take it to the next level. So it's not a matter of authority figures in politics, but that we have, you know, better first principles computation. I mean, that's really what I, I want to see us it's have. It's difficult for an ad company to do regardless, you know, unless we change the economics. It shouldn't be an ad company's job. I mean, that's that's a weird thing that 100 years from now, people are going to be like, that That was part of the problem, and, and that was a huge mistake to allow that much authority to an advertising company. So what's, what gives you hope right now? Um, I'm pretty optimistic about vaccines. So, I mean, you can see I'm dark about a lot of things. Um, 
I think we will get to a vaccine maybe even within a year or even less. There's a lot of candidates already. Um, for some reason, I like the hockey metaphor people keep using of a lot of shots on goal. Um, and I apologize for the cliche, but it's right. Like these is what is 168 compounds last time I, and, and not just compounds, but 168 um, you know, distinct lines of effort. There are a lot of different ways to come at this horrible virus. Um, there's more scientific cooperation than I've ever seen, or I think than anybody's ever seen. Maybe the Manhattan Project is a parallel, but there aren't, you know, in my lifetime, there's been no parallel. Like I have a few people working directly on this and it's like, I can call anybody for anything, anytime, and they will say yes. And that's usually not the case. Usually like you're competing with your neighbor and they don't want to tell you and you got to like read about it in the New York Times after, you know, like it's the academy can get kind of ugly. And right now everybody's rowing together against the same boat. And, um, you know, because so many people are affected, it really is everybody. It's not just somebody's pet cause or something like that. It's pretty uniform. I think other things are undoubtedly suffering. So other kinds of research that needs to get done is not. Um, so I'm not, I'm not sort of making an overall judgment, but with respect to, are we going to get to a vaccine? We have this unprecedented, um, amount of effort, a huge number of possible targets and only, you know, minimally, we only need one of them to work reasonably well to make pretty big impact. Um, and then the, the virus itself is not, um, mutating that quickly. And so to me, plus I do a little of my own expert, you know, testimony waiting things like I try to do that and understand for myself, you know, all my experts are also, you know, reasonably confident. So collectively, I think we will get to a vaccine. I don't think that's going to instantaneously solve all the problems. We're going to have distribution problems. It's not going to work perfectly, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But there'll be anti-vaxxers not taking it. So there's going to be anti-vaxxers talking about the reasoning thing. End up with another human problem, potentially. We're going to definitely have another human problem. So it's not a panacea. But I'm pretty optimistic about that. And then I guess in the long term, like eventually, even if we don't have a vaccine, you know, we'll lose some population, but the species will survive. I don't, I don't think the survival of the species is in doubt. And I'm reasonably optimistic that we'll learn some long-term lessons from this. So, I mean, I think it sucks. I wish it didn't happen. Don't get me wrong at all. But I guess I have some optimism on, on those fronts. Yeah, I, 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 if you ask me which day I get more or less optimistic about whether I think there's been enough progress made due to urgency in this or or not, but I, I do. The vaccine thing is such a great correlate to a question I've asked everybody over the years: Is could you have a Jonas Salk now? You know, it, would it be possible? Would America come together and do something like this, or would it just not happen? And now we have an actual new type of vaccine that we might be looking at, and it could happen. That that really speaks to you know the potential to be able to rise to the occasion. So whether we're or not in a great place as a nation, I mean, you know, that's something I feel pretty dark about. And actually, going back to Kluge, I've been writing about this. And I don't think I was the first person, but um, it seemed novel to me in my own head when I was writing it in two thousand. Yeah, not quite, you are quite. No, 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 no. But more specifically, one of the arguments I made was about the echo chamber, which other people have picked up since, and and you know, made much more strongly tonight. But I, I really worried that, given confirmation bias and motivated reasoning, which is this related thing where you try harder to find arguments that support your cause, um, that things like cable news and the internet were really bad, and that they were going to get worse because the natural 
consequence of that is people get more and more convinced of their own side and listen less and less to the other side. And that has gotten way worse since the book came out in 2008. I hold social media largely responsible for that. Um, it's just too easy to like get addicted. I stopped using Facebook for a number of reasons, but this was one of them. Um, addicted to the likes you get from your friends and you get the likes from your friends by pandering to what you know you know that you share with them. And, and so you, you get this crazy feedback loop and then it leads to people posting misinformation because they're not very critical of the information and the, the you know, you know, like, I don't like Donald Trump. I've made no secret of that. And so I might post something that makes him look like an idiot. Maybe it's not even true, but I'm probably not going to vet the thing that makes him look like an idiot to the same extent that I would vet something that makes him look like a genius. I, I could make a joke about baselines. I will resist. Um, the, 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 the larger point there is, you know, it happens to all of us, even people like me who like, you know, one of my number one points of pride in my life is that I don't do that. And still, I you know, I'm not perfect. And we are all subject confirmation bias, motivated reasoning. And then if you have this thing where you get, you know, basically social approval, which is one of the basic currencies of human life, um, in exchange for doing those mistakes, this terrible recipe, and it has really fragmented the nation. And so, you know, your worry about like anti-vaxxers here is a very realistic worry. Um, and, you know, it's going to be a problem. Right. Yeah. So I'm, 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 I, I agree with this as well. Certainly. Uh, I want to leave with a sort of question about, it seems like, so the, the world of people trying to solve some of these issues, is, well, I'd say in hard tech that goes a little bit by, beyond just a AI and certainly doesn't, is not academic work. So the world of building things that may have come off of academic work. So it could be genomics um, leading to personalized medicine or vaccines, or it could be AI leading to all of the, all of the things, or quantum computing, or it could be any of these things. Um, do you think that we are, and that could be you and me, it could be all of the, our friends, do you think that we're coordinating well? And if we're not, how could we coordinate better? And is there help from the outside that we could use? Well, I mean, I guess one thought I have there is there are some problems that I think need a lot of coordination. And those, unless there are projects like the Genome Project, where there's a sort of quantitative, clear deliverable, don't get the support that they ought to. And so the, I wrote a thing for the Times a few years ago, arguing for a CERN for AI. And what I thought would be important about that kind of idea is that you could have a large scale organization that picks an intellectual, scientific, medical goal and then works on it in a way that neither any individual lab is going to be able to, nor that any corporate lab is really going to have the, the interest to do it. And the example I gave was getting machines to read. It's a really hard problem. No individual academic lab is ever going to solve it because you need so much background knowledge to be encoded in the right ways and blah, blah, blah. And although places like Google nominally care about it, it's a lot of work even for them. And, you know, keyword search and the occasional question answering gets them as far as they need to go. Whereas society needs actual reading for medical purposes. Um, you know, there's whatever, 7,000 articles come out a day and having bots that could really digest that stuff and integrate it really would help humanity. Um, but to get there, my view is you need coordinated action. 
um, on a particular thing. But the political realities are it's hard. So I proposed this CERN for AI for reading, basically, in the Times in, I don't know, 2017 or something like that. And some other people kind of took up the same idea, but it lost what I thought was important about it. So um, it became more like, let's all in Europe band together to get some AI funding. And then it's like supporting like, you know, 75 uh, individual labs to do the things that they want. And then it's, you've gotten the sum of money and the administration, but you don't have the actual coordination. And so it should be a CERN or, you know, Manhattan Project's not a great example because it is something that is kind of destructive maybe, but let's say, but it is. I mean, that's a complicated one, but you know, there was a reason to solve that problem and it got solved and it's, you know. The CERN is actually get, if you're going to coordinate it's it's not um it's not a supply chain of coordination it's actually getting people in in an in an area where they are speaking to each other they are writing on boards they're coding they're playing with things they're making it happen under certain deadlines yeah and and part of that is about ego too so like the problem with the academic model and i was part of it for a long time is it's very very ego driven And it's partly because like the rewards that you get, you know, most of them aren't economic, but whatever rewards you get are kind of about you. And there are some projects that really need to be about us, need to be about a lot of people, you know, working together to some common goal. It's hard. Not everything should be like that. I think there's lots of room for what they call, you know, investigator directed discovery. And, you know, I'm all for the thousand flowers blooming, but there are some problems where... We can't solve something ourselves. You can wake up in the middle of the night and have inspiration and do something. I mean, we need to feel that sometime. Yeah, I mean, I mean, we have to have some of that. So it's a balance. But I would say that for the last, you know, 50 years, except for these projects, like the Genome Project, that are more like catalogs than figuring out how a specific thing works, um, it's mostly gone to the investigator-initiated projects. And there hasn't you know, in AI is, is a good example, but I can give you others. There haven't been any large scale projects of the sort that I think need to be done. Um, and so it's a balance and, you know, different people want to make their lives in different ways. And there are different incentives that you can imagine right now. We're not in an economic position to do anything because COVID is going to be so costly. And so it's going to be a while before we even could do these kinds of things again, but we will eventually we'll get there. And I, I hope that there'll be certain problems where we say, this kind of problem is not one that can be solved on its own. It's important enough. We need a different kind of incentive mechanism to address this problem. Thanks so much, Gary. So good to talk to you for an hour. Yeah, it was great catching up. I, I, this was a really fun uh, conversation. We can get together in person someday. Someday we'll be back on the same coast and, and, and like that. 